Please turn your Bibles with me to Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Maybe turn to Genesis 11, and we'll give a little bit of the context as we come to Genesis 12. Genesis 11, remember we, were, we saw the story of the Tower of Babel and Genesis 11, and then you come to the end of, of Genesis 11, and he's, Moses is going through Shem's descendants, and uh, we're then we're looking at uh, this, this more specific line of, of, of Shem's descendants, Terah, and his family. And as you come there to the end of chapter 11, Terah has fathered Abram and uh, his other sons. And he, he leaves uh, Ur of the Chaldeans and, and goes, is traveling toward Canaan, but doesn't make it all the way there. And we'll kind of look at that. And then we'll come to, to chapter 12, verse 1, and, and read about what God says to Abram about his kingdom. So if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. And I'm going to begin, so again, we're talking about Terah's sons and families. And let's, let's go to verse 31 at the end of Genesis 11. It says, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Then we come to verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they, went, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.'" So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. You may be seated. May God strengthen you through his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning our great need for you and our need for understanding that you can provide us. And so as we look at these verses this morning, help us understand you, help us understand your purpose for us, help us to live by faith. Help us trust not in ourselves, but in you, in you alone. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In Genesis 11, last week we saw mankind united and trying to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that was not focused on worship of God, but on disobedience and exaltation of self. Then we saw God scatter the people and we saw them scatter and separate into nations, kingdoms, 
peoples, languages, cultures. That's what happened in Genesis 11. As we come to Genesis 12, we're going to see that God still has a plan for a kingdom, his kingdom. But in Genesis 11, they're scattered. The people are scattered and they become different kingdoms. And you and I today are all feeling the effects of that. All of us are part of a kingdom. All of us are in some way part of a kingdom. And you know that a kingdom is something that has its own laws. Generally, a kingdom will have its own language and and culture, and people who are part of the same kingdom will have the same taste in foods oftentimes, or they'll, they'll wear some of the similar clothes. People who are part of a kingdom have some, some shared things, laws, and culture, and food, and, and all those sorts of things. And another thing that people generally who are part of the same kingdom share is the same story. The same story, one phrase that people use sometimes to describe the story that a culture has is meta-narrative, big story. Narrative, of course, means story. Meta-narrative is a, is a large story. And people who are part of the same kingdom generally have the same big story that they tell themselves about where they came from and how they got to be where they are and how they should live right now and what the future holds for them. That's kind of a, a meta-narrative, a big story. So, for example, the ancient Greeks had the stories of the gods and it was this big overarching story. And even if you didn't necessarily believe in all the gods, you knew the story and you into the story, and the story told you about where you'd come from, and, and it taught you things about what you should value, and what value you should place on wisdom, and loyalty, and bravery, and knowledge, and love. All those things were shaped by your meta-narrative, the big story of your culture. And what is so often the case is that big stories that people have about themselves and about their culture, about their kingdom, those stories are very often false. And sometimes the big stories that a culture has about itself, a people have about themselves, so often the, the stories are, are even evil. You think about what happened this last week throughout the world, but we think especially of, of Paris and this meta-narrative, this big story that some very depraved individuals had told themselves about who they were and who they should be and what they should do. And they committed these, these terrible acts because of this big story that they believe, this, this radical Islamist vision of the world. And it cost nearly 130 people or so that their lives as these people believed this story, right? Now, in our culture today, in our kingdom today, we live in what many people are calling the postmodern times. And what's happened today is that the people who are part of our culture have been exposed to various different cultures and they've seen all these big stories, these big meta narratives. They've seen the, the modern philosophy and its big meta narrative about how humanity was supposed to progress. They've seen uh, all sorts of meta narratives from other cultures and what the postmodern mind, the people that you're interacting with, well, the conclusion that so many people have come to is that all meta narratives, all big stories are false. They're evil. 
Meta narratives are just used to oppress people or, or to, to uh, exalt ourselves, and, and they're all false. They're the, all these, these stories that don't really explain the totality of the world. And, and so there's the postmodern mindset is to argue that all meta narratives are false, all big stories are a lie. There's this book, I think I've mentioned it before, but it's kind of this humorous science fiction book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this mindset is described very well. There's some characters who want to discover the meaning of life, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And so these characters build this giant supercomputer. And the supercomputer says, yes, I can tell you the answer to life, the universe, and everything, but it's going to take me a while. It's going to take me several million years. And they say, that seems like a long time. He says, well, it is a big question. And so he comes and this this computer, uh, after millions of years, talks to the descendants of the people who built the computer and he says I, I have the answer to life the universe and everything the answer is 42 it's a number 42 and the people say that that doesn't make any sense what what's the question the computer says i don't know i don't know the question i just know the answer in other words the, the point is that that the the author is trying to make there's the the search for a big meaning is, is useless. Even if you figure out the answer to everything, you're not going to know the question. That's the culture in which you and I are living. A culture that doesn't believe in big stories. That believes that the search for a big, meaningful truth about life, a big story that explains everything, is, is futile. Now, I tell you all that to bring you to Genesis 12. Because in Genesis 12, we see... The beginning of a kingdom, the beginning of a story of a kingdom, a kingdom that God calls all people to be a part of. God begins to tell a big story here in Genesis 12, and he has called all of us to live our lives in light of this story. Apart from believing and knowing this story about God's kingdom, you and I are going to live meaningless lives. We're going to buy into some narrative of the world that doesn't accurately explain everything that we encounter or we're going to reject meaning and live meaningless lives that are futile in God's sight and in reality so we come to Genesis 12 and we encounter a story that gives us understanding of of life of how we're to live and how we're to respond to God And if you don't understand and believe this great story you're going to be separated from God and live a meaningless life You'll have a wrong relationship with God. You'll view things the wrong way. And I don't want you to miss out on the beauty of being a part of God's kingdom, right? So, let's look here at Genesis 12. And what I'm going to want you to see here is that God promises a kingdom here in Genesis 12. God promises a kingdom that you and I can participate in as we receive the blessing that he promises to Abraham and we receive that blessing through faith. God is promising a kingdom here and you and I can experience the blessings of being a part of that kingdom through Abraham as we exercise faith in Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. Let's look at three life-altering truths that are going to help us as we see God's promise of a kingdom to Abram. And, And here's the first promise. Here's the first promise. The first promise is that God is establishing a physical kingdom. God is establishing a physical kingdom. This is the first life-altering truth that's important for us to know about God's promise of a kingdom to Abram. Let me just read the first little bit here, and then let's talk about 
the implications. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great. And we know from Acts chapter 7, from the beginning of uh, Stephen's testimony to the, the high priest about the kind of the history of Israel, he, he begins here in Genesis 12, and Stephen tells us about how God spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, and Abram and his father and his family move, but they don't get very far. They settle in Haran, and perhaps... Abraham's father, who was a, an idol worshiper, maybe a, a moon worshiper, he stops there. This is a, Haran was the center of the moon god worship, and they stay there. They delay here. And now in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram again. He tells him to go. Go, leave this country, your kindred, your father's house, and go to a land, to a physical location, a, a place that I'm going to show you. Now, look at the text there in verse 2, and you'll see that God makes three promises, right? Look at that. He says, to, he says for him to do this, and he says there's, there's three things that are going to happen. This is the promise that God makes to Abram. There's, there's three components of it. Number one, what? I'm going to make you a, a great nation. That's the first part. Then the, the second promise is I'm going to bless you. And then the third promise is I'm going to make your name great. So I'm going to make you a nation, a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Now, what do those three promises mean? Well, first of all, what does it mean to be a great nation? Whenever Abram is told that he's going to be a great nation, it's interesting that God uses that word nation. Normally, whenever we see the people of Israel described, they're described using more relational terms. They're, they're the family, they're the people, they're the tribes. There's this kind of a family relationship here. God uses a word to describe a political entity, a, a kingdom, a political structure. They're going to be a, a nation, this political entity, and there's going to be a king. Exodus fifteen eighteen says, The Lord, Yahweh, God, will reign forever and ever. Isaiah twenty four twenty three. it says, The moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, for the Lord, Yahweh of the hosts, reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Isaiah thirty three twenty two describes God and the political entity of, of a nation, how God rules. It says, The Lord is our judge. This is Isaiah thirty three twenty two. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. God is going to be doing all the things that a, that a ruler should do. Establishing this, this political structure. A, a means by which people organize themselves and, and enter into the, a kingdom together. And then Isaiah 52, 7, you know this, right? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what? Your God reigns. God says, I'm going to make you a, a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. And, and don't miss the significance of what God is promising Abram. He's saying, not just I'm going to make a bunch of people who are your descendants. He's saying, I'm going to establish a kingdom through you, a nation. I watched when I was in, I think I was a junior in high school, I remember watching this dramatization of a constitutional 
a convention in Philadelphia there where the, the founding fathers got together and they decided how representation was going to work, how this republic was, was going to work, and what the president would do and what he would not do. And, and just, I just remember being very fascinated by this, this whole dramatization of how a kingdom comes about, how a nation is, is built and decided upon. And here, God begins the story of, of his kingdom by which he's going to bless all nations. He says, I'm going to make... This, this kingdom's going to come through you. This, I'm going to make you, Abram, your descendants, a, a great nation. This is this. Next. I'm going to make you a great nation. What's the second part of the promise? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. What does that mean, I'm going to bless you? Well, we've seen this idea of blessing several times in Genesis already. In Genesis 1, 28, it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, blessing isn't just about having physical possessions. Blessing is about having life and about that life being, in Genesis, it's about that life being passed on to future generations. We use the word blessing all the time, right? As we were singing this morning, we used the word blessing. As both first and second service, as the, the men prayed before we, we passed uh, the offering around, both of them used the phrase blessing, you know, bless us, Lord, and, and bless these things. And uh, Kent very graciously prayed that God would bless me. Now, what was Kent praying? Was God saying, God, please bless Daniel and provide him, uh, as he gets ready to preach, please provide him some, some physical resources, make him really wealthy? Kent was, he was praying that. Well, thank you, Kent. Um, your prayer was not answered that quickly. But, you know, maybe there's something in the offering plate for me. I don't know. Um, oh, oh, dear. I've, I've way, I've, I'm, not, this, I'm way off notes at this point. Um, what does blessing mean? Does blessing mean just some physical provision? Is that what Kent was praying? Physical provision? No, there, there's more to it than that, right? It's about life and, and relationship with God and, and the benefit to the future generations. Genesis 26, this says, God appeared in the same night and says, I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I'm with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant's sake. It doesn't mean just these physical resources. God's blessing is about relationship. It's about being in community together and experiencing God's favor through relationship. So God says, I'm going to make your name great. Or he says, I'm going to, sorry, first of all, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And then what does he say? I'm going to make your name great. And there's, there's the idea here of royal overtones, that Abram isn't just going to be a, an important person, but he's going to be a, a political figure, and his descendants are going to have political blessing. He says in Genesis 17:6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, Abraham. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Get that? He's not just talking about making a bunch of people come from Abraham. He's not just talking about spiritual blessings. He's talking about a, a nation, kings. Genesis seventeen sixteen. I will bless her. He's talking about Sarah there. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The people around Abraham recognize his, his kingship. They tell him, you're a prince of God among us in Genesis 23, 6. What does that mean? What's, what's the implication here? What's the implication? Why does it matter that God is establishing a physical kingdom? Because I think so often we think that God is just establishing a, a, a spiritual kingdom. I haven't made a lot of progress in it, but I just started reading a book called The Big Short. It's about some people who invested and tried to do a short sell. 
in 2007 at the uh, right before the the financial crisis began to take hold they they bet against the housing market, specifically the subprime mortgages. And you know, uh, it's kind of spoiler alert here, they made out very, very well because as the market crashed, these were some people who recognized that these, these investments, these, these loans were, were in, in dire shape. Realized that people were making some, some terrible decisions. And so they, they bet against, they said these, these home loans are going to become worthless. And indeed, they were right. They made more money in a shorter amount of time than anyone else in the history of the world. There's a one person who didn't have their foresight. There's a person who was in, investing the opposite way. And this, this person wrongly saw the, the value of, of these investments. And, and this manager, Morgan Stanley, lost $9 billion in a single trade. That is a bad day, right? That was the the largest loss ever on a single trade, $9 billion. Can you imagine telling your boss about that one? He's fine. He's made millions of dollars still. He's he's doing okay, but don't feel too bad for him, right? But you just think about the the housing market in 2007, 2008, as as things just kind of went went crazy, 2008, 2009. Here's a little investment tip for you. Whatever investment you're in right now, here's the long-term forecast for you. It's eventually going to be worth zero. I won't even say zero dollars because there won't even be dollars someday, right? Whatever long-term thing you're holding on to, whatever long-term investment you have, its prognosis is not good. See, this reality that God is establishing a physical kingdom has tremendous implications for every other kingdom. Every other kingdom that exists except for God's kingdom is eventually going to be done away with. The promise that God makes Abraham here is important for us to know that it's a true physical kingdom because it means that every other physical kingdom is eventually going to to fall away compared to this one. There's no kingdom that is going to stand before God's kingdom. God's kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom, but it's a real and it's a true and it's a physical kingdom. And whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever long-term investment you think that you have, you need to understand it's still a temporary investment. And if you want my expert investment advice, it would be to, to sell quickly, <laughs> to not hold on and to have your hope in it. To use your things that God has given you for eternal purposes, for a kingdom that's going to last forever. We'll come back to that. Here's the second truth I want you to think about uh, from verses 2 and 3. Your relationship with God, what we see here in God's promises to, to Abram about his kingdom. Your relationship with God is dependent upon your relationship with Abraham. What does that mean? What does that mean? We'll look again at the text. He says that he's, he's doing these things. Look at verse 2. He's, he's talked about... These three promises in verse 2. And then he says, this is so that you will be a blessing. And that, that can also be read kind of as a command to be a blessing. But it's talking about the reason why God is going to work through Abraham. He says, okay, I'm going I'm to do these things to you, Abraham. So here's all the nations of the world. I'm going to choose you, Abram. And I'm going to do these things for you, through you. And the, there's a purpose for it. It's not just because you're so awesome. But this is the means by which I'm going to, to bless the nations. And listen to what... He promises. He's going to do three, again, three promises, right? What are the three promises? Number one, I'm going to bless those who bless you. That's the first promise. Second promise, I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to dishonor the person who dishonors you. I will curse. And what's the third promise? In you, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. Shall be blessed. So first promise, those who bless Abram and his family are blessed. We've talked about what blessing means. Second promise, those who dishonor Abraham and his family are, are cursed. Curse is the opposite of blessing. Instead of possession of life and relationship, there's separation, there's loss. And then, and this is so important for us to grasp what it means here. Then he says that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the third promise. Now what does that mean? Would you agree with me that it's important for us to understand what God is telling Abraham, Abram at this point, so that we can participate in that blessing? Like, Don't you think... If it's true that my relationship with God and receiving God's blessings and being a part of this kingdom is dependent upon my relationship with Abraham, don't you think you and I should figure out what it means to have a good relationship with Abraham? Now, sometimes we come to this this passage and we, we see this phrase, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we think about, okay, I'm going to bless those who bless you and the person who dishonors you all will curse. And sometimes we, we take it to mean only that we just need to be nice to Israel, ethnic Israel. We say, okay, ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and God says that those who bless Abraham, he'll bless those who curse Abraham or dishonor Abraham and his descendants. God will, I guess I just, I need to be nice to to Israel, right? I've I've heard that very frequently. And that's kind of the the sum total of what some people think this means. Is is that a right understanding? Keep your finger there in Genesis and, and turn to the New Testament, to Romans 11. I think Romans 11 is a great text to help us understand God's plan for ethnic Israel and then also to understand what God is saying when he, when he means that all the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham, what that does and, and doesn't mean. Because the key question, right, if, if my relationship with God is dependent on my relationship with Abraham, I want to have the right relationship with Abraham. I don't want to curse him. I want to bless him. What does it mean? Here's, here's Romans 11. Paul, remember in Romans 9, has been talking about how uh, he, he's uh, concerned for the nation of Israel, for ethnic Israel. He's, he's concerned that they've rejected the gospel. And so as he, as he thinks through that, he struggles with that. He talks about God's sovereignty in Romans 9 and the gospel presentation in Romans 10, how the gospel's gone out and they've rejected it. And then he comes to Romans 11 and he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And his people are, are ethnic Israel. Has, has God rejected Israel because they haven't accepted the gospel? Paul says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's talking there about ethnic Israel, Jewish people. Then verse 5, he talks about the remnant, and this is verse 5. So too at the present time, among ethnic Israel, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 11, he's talked about how they've, they've stumbled. So, verse 11, I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. He's talking to you and to me who are not Jewish, who are not ethnically Jews. He says in verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save 
save some of them. And he talks about how they were the branches that were broken off and we're like a wild olive shoot and we're, we're grafted in. And he says those of us who are grafted into this tree shouldn't be arrogant to the branches that were cut off. And he says, note then, verse 22, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, he's talking about ethnic Israel, these, the Natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree. Verse 26, all Israel will be saved, he tells us. And then he ends this this discussion, this discussion by this great exaltation of God. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Now, here's what I think we take from this. Here's what I think we take from this. Number one, Romans 11 tells me that God still has a plan for the Jewish people, those who are, who are ethnically Jews. God still has a plan to bring about their salvation, their acceptance of the Messiah. It tells me that I need to be very gracious and cautious and respectful toward the, the, the people of God, the, the ethnic people of God, that there needs to be a, a respect that I show to these people who, to whom God has promised acceptance of the gospel ultimately. Now this doesn't mean, I think it's important for us just to note this, it doesn't mean that I, I always support what the political entity of Israel does. And there may be times where the, the political entity of Israel is going to, to make some bad decisions or do some things that, that would be contrary to what God desires them to do and to support the people of God and ethnic Jews doesn't mean to always agree with every political decision that a people make. God himself, as he has dealt with Israel, his chosen people throughout their history, has at times disciplined Israel for making bad, sinful decisions. And what it also means, and this is where I think we have to be careful, what it also means is that whenever God says that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, he means more than than that I need to be nice to Jewish people. It's not less than that. It's not saying be mean to Jewish people. But fulfillment and having the right relationship with Abraham means more than just being nice to Jewish people. If it just meant be nice to Jewish people, then the gospel would be a moral gospel. If blessing Abraham and not dishonoring Abraham simply meant being nice to Jewish people, then the gospel would just be a moralistic gospel. How do I get right with Abraham? Well, I'm just nice to Jewish people. But what does Paul say about this relationship? Listen to Galatians 3. How do you become a son of Abraham? How do you rightly view Abraham? He says in Galatians 3 verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, this is so important to grasp. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. 
Paul is saying that's the gospel. What God is saying is, Abraham, there is coming a descendant, and that descendant is going to be the Messiah. And in, and in him, through faith in him, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That is so crucial for us to grasp. How do I have a right relationship with Abraham? How do, I, how do I not curse Abraham? How do I bless Abraham? I have the faith of Abraham and the descendant of Abraham. God is not calling me in this passage to simply practice moralism in order to have a right relationship with him. He's calling me to faith. I talked to our daughter Ellie uh, yesterday. And I said, hey, um, is it okay if I, I tell a story about you? And she said, uh, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to be there, and so you can say whatever you want to say about me, which was probably not a good decision on her part because I have, I have several stories on her that I've been just waiting. Now, I, I love our youngest daughter so much. She is such a blessing to me. Sometimes our conversations are very confusing, very confusing to me. She, um, she, if, if you're in a, a group setting and she's with people who aren't in her immediate family, oftentimes she is the most quiet kid you could ever imagine being around. But you get her around her sister and her brothers and she is just this non-stop chatterbox. I mean, she is just hilarious. And the, the really funny thing about Ellie is, is sometimes she's just talking and talking or you're trying to talk to her and she has no idea what you're talking about, and you have no idea what she's talking about. Just, just, just going every which way, not making, not making any connections. We're in the car headed to Chicago on Friday, and we're, Whitney leans, kind of looks back at Ellie and says, Hey, Ellie, I, I wanted to make sure that you brought your coat. And Ellie said, I have no idea what you're talking about, Mom. When he says, No, I, I just want to make sure you brought a coat. And Ellie said, Mom, those words don't make any sense together. And, El- and Wendy's like, it seems like they do. Did you bring a coat? And Ellie says, ah, not a coat. And, says, and Wendy's like, yes, a device that you put on to keep warm. Did you bring it with you? And Ellie goes, oh, I thought you were talking about a coat of fingernail polish. Why in the world did you think that? I don't know. That's what I thought. Did I bring a coat of fingernail polish with me? No. So often in our conversations with our our kids, like the conversation will make sense for a minute or two, and then this conversation gets bigger and bigger. We realize we're talking about totally different things, and it's very frequent with Ellie. We just don't, don't, we're just different worlds, plant universes sometimes. And sometimes... In your life, you have a story that makes sense for a little while, for a little bit, for a a small portion of time. And then something happens in your life that makes you realize this story that I told myself doesn't make sense the way that I thought it did. I had this story that was kind of my life, and it made sense until something happened, something shook my world, and now this story that I had for myself doesn't make sense anymore. I had this story about how my marriage was going to look, and now it doesn't look that way anymore. What's the deal? I had this story about how God was going to bless me financially, and now I'm not blessed financially. My, my meta-narrative, my big story isn't working out anymore. 
I had this story about my health and about what I was going to do in life and, and how my retirement was going to look. And, and now that story doesn't make sense because now something else has entered that story. And, and what I thought about God and what he was going to do in my life simply doesn't make sense. And what's wrong? What's wrong are several things. One, my concept of blessing was, was way off. When God says, I'm going to bless you, God doesn't mean I'm going to bless you. And blessing means financial security. Blessing doesn't mean I'm promising you a, a long, healthy life. Blessing doesn't mean that your spouse is always going to like you. Blessing you doesn't mean that there's going to be no difficulties ahead. And so often we have this wrong perception of who God is. And as we live this life, we say, I'm not experiencing God's blessing because I thought I was going to have children who liked me. I thought I was going to have a wife who liked me. I thought that my finances were going to be in order. I thought that I was going to be free from suffering. I thought my physical health was going to be better. And I thought all these things were going to happen and nothing good has happened to me. I'm not experiencing God's blessing. What's the deal? I thought I was going to be blessed. That's not what God's blessing means. To be blessed in Abraham doesn't mean to have moralistic thoughts and God does nice things. What it means is that I believe in Abraham's descendant, the Messiah. And I have life and a relationship with God through him. And if that's not your understanding of, of life, the big story of, of where we came from and where we are now and where we're headed, you are in for some very miserable times and some very dark times and some overwhelming times. But what does this tell us? In him, all the nations are blessed. In Abraham's descendant, the Messiah, all of us can receive God's blessing. We can receive life in him, relationship with him, life, eternal life, participation in this kingdom that he promises here in Genesis 12. Notice here the exclusivity of the gospel. God promises the gospel to all nations, and so it's inclusive, but it's exclusively through Abraham, and it's not because Abraham is so great, it's because the Messiah is so great, because Jesus is so great, because God is so great, and it's only through Abraham's descendant, the Messiah, the Son of God, that we can have life. That's the gospel. Here's the third thing, third truth. Your participation in God's future kingdom changes how you participate in your present kingdom. What does Abram do? What does he do? He goes. Verse 4, so Abram went. We've read these verses, but, but notice what he does here. He, he goes to the land of Canaan, and, and he does exactly what God has told him to do. And God confirms his promise in verse 7. This is where I'm going to give you this land. This is where this kingdom is going to be, and Abraham worships the Lord. Now, how does the New Testament describe what Abram decides to do here? Verse 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, the people of old received their commendation. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's verse 6. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, foundations whose designer and builder is God. He talks about Sarah 
And then verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham, as he came to Canaan and lived in a tent, had opportunity to go back. But he didn't. And why not? Because he had faith in God. And he believed about what God was telling him about a future kingdom. And what we believe about the future kingdom of God and our participation in it affects what we do right now, today. As it is, verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham here is called a a sojourner. If someone were to, to look at your investment strategy, how you're using your, your physical resources, what would they say about your relationship with the kingdoms of this world? Would they say, man, that, that woman, that man is, is so diversified, but diversified among the kingdoms of this world? Or, or as they looked at how you spent your, your resources, your time, your money, what you, you did with your, your thoughts, and say, that person is a person who is living now in light of the fullness of the establishment of God's kingdom that's, that's coming. Now, I believe that we are already experiencing the, the blessings of participation in this kingdom that God promised to Abraham, but I believe that its fullness still awaits, right? That is a big story. And here in this text, God is promising a kingdom that you and I can participate as receive the blessings promised to Abraham. But understand this. No other big story is going to make sense. No other story of life is going to make sense other than the story of the kingdom that God is calling us to participate in. And our participation in God's future kingdom changes how we participate in our present kingdom. Abraham's actions demonstrate his faith in God, his belief in what God has promised. Our life in this kingdom must, our life in the kingdom, the the earthly kingdoms that we're in right now, must reflect what we believe about God's future kingdom. I'm going to invite the the men to come forward to to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper. And and as they do, as they do, I I would encourage you in the, the quietness of your heart to ask God to reveal to you where your kingdom hope is, where your kingdom investments are. Ask God to reveal, Father, just show me what is it that needs to, to be reflected in my life to, to show and, and to, to illustrate that, that I am in this kingdom now, but not just this, this kingdom that other people are part of, but a part of your kingdom even now. What does it look like in terms of how I treat my, my friends and how I go about my work and how I spend my money and how I spend my time and how I'm involved in the lives of people who are hurting. God, reveal that to me. That would be my encouragement to you as you prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we, as always, you do not need to be a member of Bethany Community Church to participate in the Lord's Supper. We do encourage people to be members of a, a local church and, and or be working toward that. 
as you participate in the Lord's Supper. That's an encouragement, not a requirement, but you do need to be a believer. And we would, and uh, you can participate in the Lord's Supper as, uh, as the body of Christ together. Let me uh, pray, and then the men can be uh, passing out the elements. Father, we thank you for your kingdom, a kingdom that we are part of through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that in Abraham all of us have been blessed through Jesus, and we pray that we'd be faithful, faithful to rightly live before you by your grace and in your truth. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. This is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, proclaim God's kingdom through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, until he returns. And Father, we pray that you give us the ability to, to boldly proclaim that message with joy and hope until you return. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.